Welcome to Wizard in the Book, the unofficial Dresden Files podcast, the book series by Jim Butcher. Today we're going to be talking about Stormfront, Chapter 10. Previously on Stormfront, or previously in Stormfront, the chapters before this had this information, however you want to say that. We've met Harry Dresden, wizard detective. He's our narrator. He's been taking on two cases. In the first one, he's looking for a missing husband named Victor Sells. In the other, he's trying to catch a murderer of an escort named Jennifer Stanton and her client, Tommy Tom, while they were, well, they were having relations and had their hearts exploded by magic. Because otherwise you just can't have hearts explode out of chests. It's not really medically a thing. While looking into the murder, Harry went to go question the vampirist Bianca, who Jennifer Stanton worked for as an escort at the Velvet Room. She, after some... Well, let's just say they didn't have a very happy conversation. She gave him the name of a professional friend of Jennifer's, Linda Randall. Our chapter starts with Dresden leaving Bianca's Velvet Room and calling Linda Randall from a payphone for some reason... I don't know why. I knew it was nighttime when he went and visited Jennifer or Bianca, but I always put the scene at the airport where he goes to meet Linda Randall. I always put that during the daytime, and I don't know why. And we end this chapter with Harry in his apartment, recuperating from being attacked by a baseball bat and getting licked in the face by his cat, and vowing that he needs to research black magic before he gets himself killed. I'm going to also give you a heads up if the sound quality is pretty bad in this episode is because I'm trying different recording locations. And at the present place I'm at, apparently they're doing some landscaping. So I apologize if there's a sound in the background, if it's distracting. There's also some people around because, well, I can't control people anymore, sadly. So this is a very magic light episode or chapter. Not a whole lot of magic goes in. This is straight, femme fatale, noir-based detective goes and confronts the friend of the lady who knew some information and tries to get some stuff out of her. There's nothing inherently magical about this chapter at all. It's just straight mystery. Because of that, we don't learn a lot about, well, anything other than just straight Dresden stuff, like his actual life and him going on and not a lot about him so here we find dresden he's introducing himself as a private investigator here which i thought was kind of interesting because well when he he went into bianca he was all the old world he's all old world rules and coming in as a part of that camp i think introducing himself as a private investigator here and not just straight up wizard in the book kind of person to linda randall is very it shows how he can go from one area of his life to another to change over without having to alienate people and change things. It is, I think it is actually telling that he introduces himself as a pri- like, hi, my name's Harry Dresden. I'm a private investigator to normal mortals. When even in the phone book, he calls himself a wizard. It's, it's strange. The dichotomy that he walks. It's, it's interesting. We do learn that he, he is a really good detective. We get more evidence of that. While he's on the phone call with uh, Linda Randall, he listens in the background of all the noises that are around her and is good enough to recognize the 
the signal at O'Hare, which is, you know, unloading and loading only, that kind of thing. Of course, you would notice that if it was loud enough, but I don't know how loud those things are, especially in the time that he runs out there. We learn that Dresden is super, super distracted by sexy ladies. And we'll get into that a little bit more with Linda Randall. We learn that he has business cards. And that when he has some medical troubles, he both leans on the mystical herbal remedies and straight up science. Taking herbal teas, a tensei, or just straight up aspirin for headaches. Saying that, yeah, I'm all for the old ways, but... You know, medical science did some pretty good jobs. We also learned that Harry Dresden carries a revolver. Just a straight up gun. And I'll name that in a little bit. On to Linda Randall. As in all new characters that are introduced in the book, Linda Randall, her first name Linda, is originally a medieval short form of the Germanic names containing the element lind, meaning soft or tender. And coincides with the Spanish and Portuguese word Linda, meaning beautiful. So soft, tender, beautiful. It all sort of works together. The last name Randall, or Randolph, both of them are derived from the Old English Randulf, or the Old Norse Randolph, which means shield wolf, from Rand, meaning the rim of the shield, and wolf, meaning you know, wolf. And it's a meaning of the hunter or the enemy of the shield or the sword so she's a beautiful or soft and tender sword sort of in that elk who knows how that exactly works miss randall is described as well let's get into it here she is a sex symbol in this book and she's supposed to be the old school femme fatale with a little bit of you know heart under there hooker with a heart of gold is the colloquialism and she she sort of does play up to that and she plays up to that very well and she doesn't have else to do in this book so it is kind of this is jim butcher leaning into the noir detective meeting the sexy lady to get information and having to be a little bit more rough and it's a little bit rougher on him than it was last time with bianca because bianca was a vampire so he could be a little bit rougher with her, you know, a little bit meaner. But here, and it is kind of questionable why Linda Randall herself is a little bit more sexy. Uh, she is definitely described as more sexy, but with, you know, Harry Dresden, roughly 25 years old as our narrator, he would pick up on a lot of these signals. It is just kind of funny, though, that there's a lot more of this with Linda Randall than it is with this heavily descriptive language to describe every inch of her than it is to describe what Bianca before. And we learn that she has eyes the color of rain clouds with a little bit too much makeup around them, medium brown hair and a tight braid except for some forelocks around her forehead to frame her face, Cupid's bow lips with scarlet lipstick, a quiet dusky contralto voice. And this is, I thought it was funny, a furry, velvety, and tactile voice. A laugh rich enough to roll around naked in. Delicious. She has a predatory look, though. Harsh and sharp. She's wearing a crisp white shirt and gray slacks. And when she gets out of the car, most of her interaction is within a car. She has very long legs. Like I said, she turns Dresden on from the second. Just the way she talks and the way she acts towards him. Maybe that's more it. And it's almost 
pairing this chapter with the last chapter with Bianca shows that women are predatory towards Dresden, or at least he, he sort of sees them that way. It's kind of strange. Uh, she wants to be called Miss when he says uh, Ms. or something like that. She says, oh, Miss, Miss Randall, something like that. Uh, she smokes. She's a former escort for Bianca, which shows a little bit more about Bianca that she will let women come and go from her service. And she was a friend and roommate of Jennifer Stanton, which is why Dresden's here. She left the Velvet Room at some point and thought Bianca was a prissy bitch. But, again, Bianca seems to have let her go fine. She was a client and or friend of Tommy Tom, called up on the regular. And regular with Jennifer, with Tommy Tom. So that's how they all sort of knew each other. On the night, here's what we really learn. On the night that Tommy Tom and Jennifer Stanton's hearts exploded out of their chest the day before, Wednesday night, Jennifer had called her and said, hey, we should all get together again. Um, And this is just for a little bit more information on Tommy Tom and Jennifer Stanton. You can go back to our discussion on chapter two. I went into them a little bit more. But we learn here, Wednesday was Tommy Tom's birthday. His heart had got exploded on his birthday. That's messed up, man. Of course, we also learned that he could turn a woman into an animal, all snarling and sexy and stuff. So, And that's from an escort. So, dude, had to have been pretty good. But yeah, there was supposed to be some big reunion. We also learned a little bit more about Jennifer Stanton from one of her friends here. Linda Randall says that Jennifer was not very jaded. And in their profession, you'd think you would be after a while. And that Jennifer Stanton made people feel better about themselves. She was the type of person who didn't just, she didn't just show up for the orgasm when she was doing her escort duties. She actually seemed to care about the person and make them uplifted a little bit. And this may just be a way for Linda Randall to talk down on herself, said she can't do that. She's, she's just good for orgasms. She's not any good. We don't know how Jennifer Stanton probably viewed herself, but this is definitely how Linda Randall views both Jennifer Stanton and well, Linda herself. So it's, it's actually very sad in a way, but moving on from the poor hooker with the heart of gold, the Beckett's show up in this. They are Linda Randall's current clients. Uh, she's picking them up from the airport. Beckett is a name comes from brocot from old English, meaning bee cottage or beehive, which I thought doesn't really fit them at all, especially since Dresden describes them as very, very cold people, uh, gray business clothes, glasses, all career, no kids, no jewelry. They're just kind of spooky and empty eyed. And when they talk to Linda, they're just very abrupt, and fast. It's, it's just a weird, weird conversation at all times. I don't know. But after he's done with Linda Randall and the Beckett's and they all scoot off and leave, Dresden figures, well, I might as well, you know, do some more information. So he goes back to a payphone and he talks to Jack, the pizza express driver that delivered pizza out to the Victor Sells house, going from one case to another. We're skipping back and forth. We're sort of starting to really intertwine these cases for some reason or another. I don't know why. Uh, the name Jack for the pizza driver is commonly derived from Jackin or Jockin, a medieval form of John, meaning which of course means God is gracious. We've covered that a few times. And it's so common at one point or another that Jack became synonymous with the word man. So if you were referring to a man, you just called him a Jack. 
Jack himself, the pizza driver, has a high baritone voice and claims this is the second time he's been called about delivering pizza to Victor, Victor Sales' house. So, man, so Justin's like, who's the first person? He's like, ah, I don't want to worry about this. I don't, just like I told the other guy, I don't care what I saw. I didn't see anything. I didn't mean to see anything. I'm sorry. It looked like you guys were having a whole lot of fun. Enjoy yourself. And uh, I wasn't with the guy taking pictures. And Dresden's like, oh, what, what, what's going on? And then pizza guy hangs up. So Dresden doesn't have as much sway with the pizza guy. Which kind of wonders me. He talked to Linda Randall on the phone, then chased her down. And she kind of hung up on him. Why not chase the pizza guy down? Just interesting question. Straight up. Maybe save that from the end. But there you go. Dresden, after talking to the pizza guy, goes home and gets his ass kicked by a guy with a baseball bat. Uh, the guy has a low and rough voice, warns Dresden off of doing something. Other than that, we don't really hear anything. He just hits Dresden in the head with a baseball bat and gets him in the side a couple times, kicks him while he's down, and then tells him off and leaves. Then we got Mr. comes up and says, you know, hey, Dresden, what are you doing? Of course, he doesn't say that. He's a cat. He just licks him in the nose and rubs up against him and is like, oh, master's hurt. Get your ass up and feed me some Coke or whatever else. If you want to learn more about Dresden's cat, mister, go back to chapter eight. As I said earlier, there's not a lot of super, supernatural stuff in this chapter. This is straight all just private investigating, noir, you know, talking to the sexy people and seeing what they know. That's all we get on this. Um, there are several cultural things though, which again, if you're not, if you're interested in the Dresden files, this is sort of where I divorce myself from them and get into all the pop culture and all the strange things that Dresden mentions and talks about. And I'll definitely jump into that with the Studebaker. Now the, if you're like me, the only reference you have to a Studebaker is a bear and a Studebaker from the Muppets. You will not understand when Dresden's loner, uh, when his blue beetle breaks down, George gives him a loner and his loner is a Studebaker. Well, what is a Studebaker? Turns out Studebaker is a, well, they originally been, oh, it's a car. Duh. The company was originally based in South Bend, Indiana, founded in 1852 and incorporated in 1868 under the name Studebaker Brothers Manufacturing Company. They originally produced wagons for farmers, miners, and the military. In 1902, they got into the automotive business, and they produced electric cars at first, which I didn't even know that was a thing that early. In 1904, they jumped in with the gasoline vehicles, and they sold it under the name Studebaker Automobile Company. After that, they kept going for about 50 years. When in 1954, the company merged with the Packard Car Company, Unfortunately, the Studebaker brand was really crappy. Unfortunately, they had big financial problems. The Packard brand was phased out, and the company returned to the Studebaker Corporation in 1962. That did not last long, however, because the South Bend plant, the original plant, ceased production in uh, 1963, and the last automobile from Studebaker came from Ontario in 1966, and they were done. Throughout this chapter, we get lots of references to the payphone. In case you're young and don't remember what a payphone is, there used to be on a lot of corners and definitely gas stations and just public places, there were these payphones, phones that 
or landlines like your grandpa has where you'd put money in and you could call people. It's usually pretty cheap and for limited time. So like for one quarter, you got like 15 minutes or something. I can't remember exactly how much it was. And these got themselves into pop culture all over the place because they were mostly, you know, we didn't have cell phones. So if you were out and about and wanted to call somebody, you had to find a payphone. You'll see these in a lot of movies. The payphone actually is, you know, like I said, coin operated. There's a lot of little facts that I didn't know though. Well, there's definitely prepaid calling cards. So think a credit card, but just for phone calling. You'd put money on it. Sort of like a burner phone, but it was a credit card. And I didn't understand that, why that was really important until I started thinking about and read about different countries. Like say your country was politically unstable and you wanted to call Jim down the road and you had a phone, uh, a coin with King George on it, but King George got violently murdered 10 days ago and King Bill, the new guy, he made his own currency with his own coins and said anybody with King George's money, you throw that crap in the river. Well, that turns the payphone industry completely up crap hill. I didn't really realize that. You know, I live in America where we've had pretty stable currency for at least my entire life. That's 30 something years now. So it's kind of fascinating that the debit card or the calling card, those were really important inventions at one point. So yeah, the basic history of the payphone, there's really two main times when it was, you know, key moments in payphone history. One was 1891 when William Gray patented the coin-operated telephone. And one was in 1920 when the General Post Office of the United Kingdom introduced public telephone kiosks. So they've been around since 1920. They held on for a very, almost 80 years. Good for them. Now, in pop culture, though, you'll see payphones all over the place. And like I said, newer generation might not know exactly what they were or how like not even popular, but just, they were just there. Like, it's just one of those things that it's like a gas station. You just saw them. They just existed. You didn't have to question what they were. And when they showed up in movies, of course, Superman changed his clothes in a lot of phone booths. Bill and Ted traveled through time in a phone booth. That was one of my favorites. There was a movie called phone booth with Colin Farrell, where dude with a sniper rifle would like shoot him. If he stepped out of the phone booth, it's not bad actually. And there was this big pop culture wave, which this is probably my favorite story of that. We're going to get into the Mojave phone booth way out in the middle of the Mojave desert. There was a platform and I'm not sure exactly what the story was, but it was in the middle of the national preserve and there was just a platform and somebody at one point, I guess had a business out there or maybe the park service had something out there, but there was a phone booth just in the middle of the desert sitting there. And a couple guys got the number, so they started calling it. When the internet started coming around, like 1994 to around 2000, the number sort of went out into the world, and people would just randomly call it. And people would go out and visit it and answer the phone and be like, yes, this is the Mojave phone. I'm in the middle of the desert talking to you on a cell phone, on a on landline. This is amazing. I just thought that was an interesting, big thing. There's even a 2006 independent movie on it called The Mojave Phone Booth that's actually pretty interesting. And you can find a bunch of things on YouTube about it. It was actually removed in the year 2000, but for nostalgia's sake, the assigned number, and you can still call it, 1-760-733-9969 
is an open conference call that you can just call at any point. So happy hunting with that. Next up, big part of this chapter was O'Hare Airport, the setting for the chapter, where Linda Randall's picking up the Becketts. Chicago O'Hare International Airport, also known as O'Hare or Chicago International or simply O'Hare, was an international airport in the far west side of Chicago, well still is, 17 miles northwest of the Loop. It is the primary airport serving the Chicago metropolitan area, with Midway International about 10 miles closer to the Loop, serving as a secondary airport. It was operated by the City of Chicago, Department of Aviation. It's super busy, often topping the busiest airport list in the world. It was constructed in 1942-1943 as part of a manufacturing plant for the Douglas C-54s during World War II. 1949, the airport was renamed O'Hare International Airport to honor Edward O'Hare, the U.S. Navy's first flying ace and Medal of Honor recipient in, 1940, in World War II. So little f- fun facts about O'Hare. When describing the Becketts, Dresden calls them a Nordic track couple, which I always took that sort of to mean that they were sort of, I mean, it's got that icy cold Nordic, you know, like the Swedes and Nords just very blonde, very in there. That has absolutely nothing to do with Nordic tracks whatsoever. I, I, I always thought, you know, Nordic track was a Swedish product. It is not. It was founded by Edward and Florence Pauls in 1975 when Edward invented the original Nordic track ski machine in his garage in Shaska, Minnesota. Well, maybe it is Nordic. Who knows? In an effort to train for the local VJC cross-country ski race. Several of the first machines were branded Nordic Jock, and the company was built and operated on a cash-and-carry basis. No money was ever borrowed during the Paul's partnership from 1975 to 1986, and it's still in operation, doing pretty well. Another description of the Becketts, she said, Dresden says Mrs. Beckett has the look of a prisoner released from a German Stalag. I wanted to know what the hell a German Stalag was, because it's a word I didn't know, so I looked it up. It really means a prisoner of war camp. So it's not, it's not like the concentration camps, and it's often confused with concentration camps in like general public. The Stalag is a, concent- a contraction of Stromlager. Uh, it's not meant for civilians. It, this is straight up in the war. Fortunately, during World War II, um, there were consistent breaches of the UN Council prisoner of war, particular for Russian, Polish, and Yugoslav prisoners, because according to Nazi ideology, ideology slavic people regarded as i'm not even going to try to pronounce the russian the the german but racially inferior they weren't concentration camps though so the nordic look of these people would actually maybe put them as actually no they would probably be you know the blonde haired blue eyed sort of master race feel to it but anyway Dresden says they have the look of someone who was in the german stalag which you can take that however you want. Some notable German Stalags were the Hogan's Heroes and Hearts War. The TV show Hogan's Hero and the book Hearts War or movie Hearts War, I can't remember. And in Israel in the 1950s and 60s, Stalag was a generic term for pornographic material with the theme of a sadic, sadistic sexual activity between female SS officers and prisoners of war. In 2007, Ari Lipsker made a film on this topic entitled Stalags. So, fun fact about cultural appropriation. Taking it back. Even though, you know, not really a... Well, I guess it could be. 
It's a horrible thing. So we also learn in this chapter, chapter, that the film canister found in chapter six outside Victor's cells, it comes back into play. So if you want to learn more about film canisters, go back to chapter six and educate yourself. Dresden also claims, sarcastically, that if he learns a certain thing, dra- dragons will fly out of his butt. Where did this phrase come from? Because I was just curious. Let's just say that. It is a popularized idiom from, they think that it was popularized in the 1992 film Wayne's World, likely a ver- variation of pigs might fly. It's like a s- sarcastic reproach. So if someone says, I could win a million dollars, or monkeys could fly out of my butt, or dragons could fly out of my butt. It's it's sort of a weird mystical appropriation of that term. So I, I thought there might be a deeper thing into it, but no, it's just another variation of pigs flying or, you know, a strange occurrence happening, appropriated for a wizard, including dragons, for some weird reason. Even though he uses those type of things all the time, so who knows? I don't know. Here's where we get into tinsane tea. Uh, Dresden takes it for a headache. It is technically a fruit tea, so it's not made of tea leaves. It's made of sort of a fruit extract or some type of fruit extract mixed with tea, a weaker tea to bring out. Some feel the term tinsane is more correct than herbal tea and that the latter is even misleading, that herbal tea isn't really because it's not made of herbs. But most dictionaries record that the word tea is also used to refer to other plants besides the tea plant, and beverages made from these are other also other plants. So tea is sort of an ambiguous word that people sort of just appropriate for everything. The word tinze was rare in the modern sense before the 20th century when it was borrowed in the modern sense from the French. This is why people feel it should be pronounced tinzan as the French, and the original t- pronunciation of tinzan I don't know words. The pronunciation's all over the place on this word, so I don't feel bad pronunciating it wrong. Pronunciating it wrong. That's a The old French word came from the Latin phrase cinsana, which came from the ancient Greek word, which meant peeled barley. In other words, pearl barley, a drink made from this barley that is similar to modern barley water, which I didn't even know was a thing, so I didn't look that up, but there you go. Dresden's gun is a Smith & Wesson 38 Chief Special. It was introduced in 1950 by a Smith & Wesson and is still in production. When it was produced as the Chief Special until 1957, when it became the Model 36, which is its modern name after 1957, the Chief Special continued to be manufactured as a separate variant. I didn't see why, why it is a variant, though. Maybe the barrel length or something. The Smith & Wesson Model 36 is a revolved revolver chambered for 38 special rounds. It is one of the several models of J-frame Smith & Wesson, Smith & Wesson revolvers. So, just a little information about the Smith & Wesson gun. If you know more about guns than me, good job on you. I don't know squat about guns. And if you want to tell me, email me at Harker, uh, contact at Harper, Harker Books. I don't think I have a wizard in the book. Contact at Band Library few questions after this chapter's done. Uh, so it turns out there's lots of weird sex going around with Linda Randall and the Becketts, Victor Sells out at his house, our murder victims. They're all doing all kind of sex stuff. Uh, just discuss. Think about that. Why Dresden maybe hasn't put all that together. 
who beat the crap out of Harry at the end of this chapter? My, my money's on Marcon's goons, because vampires and armed gods don't usually use baseball bats to beat people up. Maybe they do in this world. Wizards carry chief specials, so who knows? Of course, it might be a clever ruse, like I said, so maybe a vampire beating somebody up with a baseball bat to make them think it's a gangster. Who knows? Uh, does Harry have to do black magic to research it? That, that was also another question I just had thinking about it when he's like, okay, I'm going to go do black magic. But how do you gain magical knowledge without doing it? Like, Bob didn't seem to know it, so how? what is Harry going to do to research black magic? Like, how is he going to learn that? I don't understand how one learns black magic unless you call the dark source. Maybe that's what he has to do. I don't know. We'll find out. And how come Linda Randall could turn on Harry's head, like I said before, when Bianca didn't seem to be able to, like... They both seem to be very sexy women. Linda Randall, somehow, with her more severe application of humanity, I guess maybe that's the only thing. But how come she was able to turn Dresden on faster than Bianca could? Maybe it's just the knowledge that Bianca was a monster. I don't know. That's that's no... I don't even want to get into that. But... It is a question. Like, maybe there's an inherent humanity that is attractive that sort of repelled Dresden knows. I don't know. But it is an interesting question and an interesting reflection on how he treated both women. But either way, uh, that's it for our episode this week. If you want to contact us, at we're mostly on BandLibrary, BandLibrary.com. Contact at Band Library or at Band Library on Twitter. My name is S.T. Harker. I'm at Harker Books. See if you want to find me there. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash bandlibrary. A dollar a month will get you these episodes a few days early, as soon as I can. And I'm starting to put uh, extra posts and not so much audio, but there is an audio download link, RSS feed that you can access that will just download all these episodes of everything I do. Because I upload everything to Patreon so that Patreon members get everything. They're the dollar a month subscribers. Get everything first. And I still don't have a catchphrase for signing off. So I guess I can only say goodbye and I'm sorry for the sound issues. That's going to be my normal sign off. Thank you for listening.